Pints with Jack, Episode 21. The Great Divorce, Chapter 14, Sunrise. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We are currently in Season 2 and unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Dave. (laughs) That was unintentional, but it was on my mind. (laughs) You did it again. I know. This time I prepared even. Matt, you are Matt. I am David. I can understand why you'd want to be me. You're Matt. (laughs) There is a subconscious desire to rise up to become like David. I think that's a great intro. I think that really says everything. (laughs) That's better than any sycophantic uh, compliment you could give me. This is this is my own earthly theosis to be not from going from the natural life to divine life, but going from the Matt life to the David life. So for the drink this week, I've got Woodford Reserve. Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, Since Yana and Vlad still haven't had their child, I'm going to continue drinking this Talisker until that happens. And our quote of the week comes from Lewis's exclamation in this chapter when he sees that the sun is now finally going to rise. Screaming, I buried my face in the folds of my teacher's robe. The morning, the morning, I cried. I am caught by the morning, and I am a ghost. But it was too late. The light, like solid blocks, intolerable of edge and weight, came thundering upon my head. I thought we should end with something a little bit dramatic. Wow. The language Lewis uses is scary. (laughs) To being terrified. Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) To being terrified. Cheers. How's the Woodford? Ooh. It's actually got a really, I don't know if this is how I should describe it, but like a silky smooth lingering taste that just sits. Like it's still lingering after tasting it. Mm -hmm. I like that. How's the Talisker? Oh, as great as always. Puts fire in your belly. (laughs) Uh, Well, this past week has been quite action-packed for me. Uh, I went and saw the new Tolkien movie. Uh, I actually thought I was going to miss it while I was in cinemas, but Marie and I went to go and see it after work. I'd heard some bad reviews for it. I really enjoyed it. I'll have to see it because I've, I've heard Bishop Barron talk about it, and... He spoke with good remarks and the enjoyment of the film. The only critique he had, which I would say is a huge one, but he went into great depth himself on the backstory of the the Catholic faith in Tolkien's life. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was like left out in this, it felt like. Yeah, they really did try and ignore it entirely. They they couldn't get rid of it completely because you have to explain why a priest is directing his life. Um, But yeah, they, they do downplay it quite considerably you know they they get his love for edith really well his love for language but i would say his love for myth they don't really communicate that brilliantly uh and definitely not his catholic faith and he said of the lord of the rings that it was chiefly a religious work so the fact that you try and do a biopic about tolkien and don't really linger on his religion i thought was a bit crazy yeah bishop Barron pointed out something i thought was interesting that for tolkien Faith wasn't a part of his life. It was the central component. Everything poured out from that. 
and so that's probably pretty hard for a Hollywood director to even grasp that idea that that can even be possible for someone because for most people it's well this isn't this is an important part of my life or this is a part of my life and it fits in my life no this is the central part of my life and from it comes everything so to leave that out i guess was a minor miss you could say i i think it was a big miss <laughs> but uh, at the same time i don't think that should discourage people from seeing it because it is a very well done movie and more importantly, I think it would stimulate somebody to go and find out more about Tolkien and to read or reread The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So that, that's a win. I finished The Hobbit and I am three quarters of the way through The Fellowship of the Ring. We will have to talk about that when you're done. I got pretty bogged down in the Tom Bombadil stuff. That was, ah, was yeah. that beginning was slower than I remembered. <laughs> but anyways, we'll save that for another conversation. More importantly, though, more than the Tolkien movie, you met someone pretty incredible this week. I did. I got to meet Peter Kreeft. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he is a philosophy professor at Boston College. In, he's written several books on C.S. Lewis, and he was in San Diego promoting his latest book, Symbol or Substance, which is a, an imagined conversation between Tolkien, Lewis, and Billy Graham about Holy Communion. Wow. Okay, this is the perfect entry that he's promoting his book. He's getting it out there. We've got great listeners that are looking for a new book to to buy. We should tell them that here's another opportunity to promote it. <laughs> this is the perfect crowd. I would imagine we would have a high prop percentage of listeners that would love to purchase this book. I'm already intrigued by it. Well, related to that, one lucky listener is actually going to get a signed copy of Symbol or Substance. You got three so copies, got right? <laughs> no so so listeners let's just be clear one for david one for the listeners the podcast host co-host needs to uh win this through the normal channels i guess oh no you're you're ineligible for this <laughs> i don't even get that if you hadn't have moved away from san diego then you might have your own signed copy who knows I can't make life for you too easy out there on the east coast <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're going to go to our iTunes reviews and we're going to choose one of them at random. And whoever wrote that review is going to get the signed copy. So we're going to give a few weeks for you to do this because it's going to take some time to listen. We want to give people at least a week or two after to come to the episode. But for people like my mother, who it'll be at least three months before she comes to the episode, <laughs> she will not get a chance at this. And if you've already written us a review, you're going to be included in the competition. Yes. And so then we'll announce it. So make sure you remember the review you wrote. And your username. <laughs> and your username. If you really want to be awesome, convince some of your friends to write reviews. And then, you know, better yet, grab their iPhone, put the face ID on their face so it unlocks and go to the podcast app and just do it through their phone. That seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, before we <laughs> get to the chapter, there was one other thing I wanted to share just because it's so exceptionally dumb. Several people sent me this link. Here's the article. The United Kingdom is suddenly bereft of beavers, and apparently it's all C.S. Lewis's fault. The Times of London and the Daily Mail report that a certain Mr. Ben Goldfarb is on a crusade to reintroduce the mighty beaver to Great Britain, and is finding that the Chronicles of Narnia, which features a married beaver couple, is standing in his way. It goes on and says that, In Lewis's iconic tale of a fantasy land accessed through the back of a magical wardrobe, the beaver pair is depicted as sharing a hot fish supper with some of the book's human characters. And Mr. Goldfarb is then quoted as saying, they're totally herbivorous. That's one of the funny things about beaver reproduction in the UK. 
Every British schoolchild reads Narnia, and they grow up thinking that beavers are going to eat all the fish. That is biologically inaccurate. And then right at the end of the article, it says, The Daily Mail reports that Goldfarb did acknowledge that he was complaining about a fictional character. <laughs> this is real. It's real, and it's so dumb. What? You, are you seriously telling me that a book where children get into a magical land through the back of a wardrobe and meet talking beavers and Father Christmas, that it might not be strictly accurate? <laughs> uh, so Lewis is having a negative impact in part of the environmental fight. It would seem so. <laughs> My goodness. I'm still, not, still having a hard time believing this is real, but I trust you. Nope. It's in two major UK newspapers. Wow, what does this say about the UK? Uh, this is why I'm going back at the end of the month. They, they need fixing. <laughs> they need the rational David Bates to uh, set them straight. Exactly. I am willing to be king and or prime minister. They need the great infection of David Bates. I'm not sure if I really want to be described as giving people infections, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're bad, David. I think it's time to go to the summary on that note. Yes, I think we need to move forward. So, here's the summary for chapter 14, the last chapter of The Great Divorce. Lewis sees a great assembly of gigantic forms, standing about a silver table with little chessmen who went to and fro, each a representative of one of the great presences that stood by, the immortal souls of those same men and women. This vision terrifies Lewis, and he asks MacDonald whether these conversations between the spirits and the ghosts were they only a mimicry of the choices that they had really made long ago? His teacher says that you might alternatively say that they were anticipations of a choice to be made at the end of all things. But he says that it would be better to say neither. The important point was that, on this journey, Lewis had seen the choices we make a little bit more clearly than we do on Earth. The story culminates with the sun rising, and Lewis waking up on the floor of his study to discover that it has all been a dream. Well, I'm glad I learned one thing from that summary. What was that? I'm going to be saying one of those quotes, and it's mimicry, not mimicry. <laughs> yeah, you talk about somebody being a mimic. A mimic does mimicry. It's good to know. Vocab, grammar, not my strong suit. So it starts out the chapter with this silver table with these gigantic forms around it and chess pieces on it. Lewis describes the gigantic forms as motionless and in deep silence, standing forever about a silver table. And so right there, we get this image of the timelessness. The chessmen, he describes as these puppets, each of the immortal souls of the gigantic forms. And then finally, the silver table, this chess table, is time itself. And so you have these immortal souls watching their mortal bodies or mortal beings making these decisions. And Lewis says, in the acts and motions of each chessman were a moving portrait, a mimicry, or a pantomime which delineated the inmost nature of his giant master. And when I read that quote, it made me think of stuff that we've talked about a bit in Mere Christianity in this idea that everything is very interconnected. We talked about this with Jesus, with the resurrection, with what that did to us, the way it went back in time, the way it went forward in time, the way our actions, like this one big living tree and these decisions 
affect everything it's this living organism almost the, the the community the body of christ and so i was thinking of that when i read that i don't know if you got that sense david for me it was the the connection between time and eternity and that's what i really like about this image because you see the chess pieces making their moves through time but that they have eternal consequences and if i may be so bold I would have actually liked a slightly different picture painted here. I would have liked him to describe how those how those great forms, those figures standing around the table, were changed as a result of the moves that were being played. Have you ever read the picture of Dorian Gray? No. Okay, it was written by Oscar Wilde, and it's basically about this guy who is very beautiful, but he starts doing some really horrible things. And all of those horrible things start affecting a portrait that was made of him. So he will remain forever young and beautiful, but his portrait starts to look more and more hideous. It's basically a reflection of his soul. And so I would have kind of liked to have seen the chess pieces move and then these souls that are standing around the table visibly start to change. And connecting it with Lewis's other stuff, they're changing in one of two directions. They're either becoming a little bit more heavenly looking or a little bit more hellish looking. I really like that. Well done, because Lewis in this book is trying to get us to see that our actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about heavenly hellish creatures. To take a completely different analogy is, I was just talking about this with my sister, of decisions you make now in your 20s or 30s financially that you save for retirement. Mm-hmm. Like every dollar you put away will probably be 8x in retirement when you're 60 because every 10 years you put it in the market, it will double. So when you think of spending, think of the effect it has on your retirement in every dollar. This is somewhat similar of when you make decisions in time, think of the effect they have in the future. And the compound interest. Yes, It might be a small action now, but is that going to compound over time in your subsequent decisions and your subsequent choices? The other image that came to my mind, when I was growing up, a lot of video games, your health meter was usually a picture of the hero. And each time you took damage, it would slowly start turning into a picture of the bad guy. I remember in the game for Batman the movie, the original one, you started off with a picture of Batman and you slowly turned into the Joker each time you took damage. But then when you, got, when you picked up health bonuses, you started turning back into Batman, a sort of variant of this heavenly and hellish creatures. <laughs> I like that as well. That's a good one. This is why you will see Christians sometimes be really vigilant about small sins because the small sins can compound to have big problems in our future. Now, one thing I do want to say before we move on from this that I also thought of when I was reading this is that Lewis himself refers to chess a couple of other times in his works but the one that particularly jumped out at me was his spiritual autobiography surprised by joy because there when he's talking about his conversion he titles chapters as check and checkmate which gives yet another view onto this chessboard lewis compared his own life as playing chess with god and god being the superior chess player and closing in on him so i think it actually offers a little bit of hope for those great figures surrounding the table to know that god might be involved in this chess game as well the thing the one thing i was thinking of when i was reading this before your great explanation was back to mere christianity 
where when he's talking about that process of going from created to begotten, natural life to divine life, there's a sentence he says where he, he states, humanity is already saved in principle, but we as individuals, we have to appropriate that salvation. And he goes on and says, if we only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully present, he will do it in us and for us. He's, as you said, he's bringing together this in time and this out of time. And it's a bit confusing at first. And this helped me see that the salvation, what Christ did is already done and it's done for all of us. And that's, 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 it was in time, but it was also outside of time and it was for everyone And yet we are in time and we have to relate to that. We have a choice to make in response to that, to allow him in. And that's really what the great divorce is. All these examples of different people, as Lewis says, that lay ourselves open to the one man. They're laying themselves down to God. Well, actually, they're not. (laughs) They're supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) Just just, just one of them. Just one of them. Sarah Smith did. (laughs) And the guy with the lizard. Now, Lewis reacts really badly to this vision. Why do you think that is? I actually had this exact response as I was reading it before I read Lewis. You do get the sense when you're watching these chess players seeing their actions happen that maybe decisions have already been done. So do these actions really matter at all? Because they're outside of it. Like that was my first thought. And I'm thinking to myself, did everything we just read, was it worthless? I mean, has everything we've talked about for three months with all of you listeners a waste of time? Have these choices (laughs) already been made? And so what's the point of the decisions that chess people are making? Lewis's question is, is all that we've been seeing in this country false? Are the conversations that we've witnessed between the spirits and the ghosts, are they just mimics of a choice that was made a long, long time ago, and it's now just working itself out? But MacDonald says, well, you actually might look at it the other way and regard all of these conversations as anticipations for the choice that's going to be made at the end of everything. But then he says, but you're probably best to do neither. <laughs> and he, he basically tells Jack why he's been here. He's been here so that he can see these choices being made. You remember in the last episode, he spoke about seeing things through the lens of time. Well, he says that by witnessing these conversations here in heaven, the lens is clearer. He can see more clearly the choices that are actually being made. And then we come to the plot twist that I promised you all last week. <laughs> MacDonald says to Lewis, don't ask of a vision in a dream more than a vision in a dream can give. And it's at this point, Lewis realizes something. He realizes he's actually not in heaven. This is a dream. And he says, am I not really here, sir? And MacDonald's response is just beautiful. He says, no, son. And he takes Lewis's hand and he says, it's not as good as that. The bitter drink of death is still before you. And this in itself is just really beautiful. When speaking of death, MacDonald says, it's not so good that that you've already died. (laughs) It reminds me of a letter that Lewis wrote to a lady who thought she was going to be dying soon. And Lewis says to her, has this world been so kind to you that you don't want to leave it? And he writes the line that is often quoted out of context, that there are better things ahead than those we leave behind. Now, oftentimes that's put as a motivational poster. But Lewis was talking about death. He said, you, what is ahead of you after death is better than anything that you would leave behind. And actually, as it turned out, Lewis died before this lady. But prior to that, in 1963, he suffered a heart attack 
and he lapsed into a coma for some time. And then to everyone's surprise, he woke up and had a partial, albeit rather short, recovery. And the passage that we've just read about McDonald saying that it's not as good as that, the bitter drink of death is still before you, it reminded me of something that Lewis wrote in a letter to Sister Penelope, who was an Anglican nun he was very close friends with. Here's what he wrote about waking up from the coma. He says, I was unexpectedly revived from a long coma, and perhaps the almost continuous prayers of my friends did it. But it would have been a luxuriously easy passage, and one almost regrets having the door shut in one's face. To be brought back and have all one's dying to do again was rather hard. Ugh. And he later adds in this message to Sister Penelope, When you die, and if prison visiting is allowed, come down and look me up in purgatory. <laughs> That's great. But the fact that he was almost dead and came back, and he was almost sad about it, because he knew that what we leave behind is far less than what is ahead of us. I don't know how it would feel. My first thought was, which is an incorrect thought, but how great would it be to experience death? Almost get that confirmation that you are going to be in eternity with God. I would assume if you if you were dead and you came back to life, like you, you might have gotten some sort of validation that this is going to happen and that this is real. And then you get a chance to live on earth with that complete knowledge. Like you and I are doing it with a faith and we've we've come to this belief, but of course we don't know with one hundred percent unequivocal certainty. And so we're both that this is real and that we're doing it properly. And Lewis almost gets that validation. And then to come back to earth and be able to live again, there's a part of me that would be like, oh, that would be pretty cool. But then that's wrong because you experience such joy, it would be a pain to come back. Yeah. And you still have the race now to run. Yeah, you're right. Because that doesn't necessarily mean you don't make wrong choices after that point in time. When you look through the Bible, by and large, most of the great leaders, they fall in later life. Solomon started great, but went downhill very quickly. Oh, that's scary to think about. And the idea of coming back, that reminds me of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In one of the <laughs> later seasons... Yeah, I know. I've, I've, I've watched... I've watched <laughs> I don't even know what this is, but what a day. You've never seen Buffy the Vampire <laughs> I've Slayer? I've never it's heard Michelle this. Gellish. It's actually... It's really good. I've, some episodes are better than others, but... Uh, what time period? Uh, oof, this was early 2000s. Oh, so I was alive. It's a Joss Whedon miniseries. Okay. But I do remember one episode when, spoiler alert, Buffy dies. She actually <laughs> dies a few times over the course of the show. But then, using magic, they then pull her back. And she's changed because she had experienced heaven and was then ripped out and then brought back to Earth. Hmm. I don't, you don't make me want to watch this. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a couple of episodes. There are some, there are some good ones. <laughs> You've sent me stuff on The Great Divorce and I barely watch it. Do you really think I'm going to watch these? Is it worth your time and effort to send me these? Sarah Michelle Gellar is really cute. Okay, send me these, please. <laughs> uh, if we have any other Buffy fans, please send me a message. Let me know I'm not alone. <laughs> uh, well, anyways, I appreciate you sharing that because I actually did not know that, that Lewis died. He didn't die. Was in a coma. When is a coma? Too bad he didn't write a near-death experience book. Like, heaven is for real. Oh, now, now, now you're heading into uh, controversial waters. Yeah, we'll steer clear from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's clear up a few other controversial things, because MacDonald sets Lewis right. 
he makes it very clear that if you tell people about this, and remember, this is still only a story, but he says, if you tell people about this, let them know it was a dream. He says, make it very plain. Don't, don't pretend that you're claiming knowledge that no mortal actually knows. And what's funny about this is the number of people I've known who have read The Great Divorce and think that Lewis is trying to accurately describe what the afterlife is like. It's not. It's an imaginative supposal. It's a, it's a work of fiction designed to teach us. MacDonald says, I'll have no Swedenborgs and no Vale Owens among my children. And by this, what he means is he doesn't want anybody to know that Lewis is a huge fan of MacDonald and that Lewis is trying to claim that he knows more about the afterlife than anyone else. Those two people he mentions, Swedenborgs, this was Emanuel Swedenborg. He was a Swedish Lutheran theologian uh, in about the 17th, 18th century. And in his book, The Heavenly Doctrine, he says that God opened his spiritual eyes so that he could freely visit heaven and hell and converse with angels and other spirits. And this guy was actually one of the inspirations for William Blake and his book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell which is the very book that Lewis is responding to in The Great Divorce. And Vale Owens was George Vale Owens, who was a Church of England vicar in the 20th century, and he became one of the best-known spiritualists of the day. Uh, he was actually very much admired by the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who you'll recall we heard about from MacDonald in an earlier chapter under the pseudonym of Sir Archibald. Remember the guy who only cared about survival? I love that. So as listeners have probably heard us allude to a bit before, David and I switch every week leading. And I love how I had one sentence on what David just spent the last 10 minutes talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I just, David stopped me as I moved on to the next section. And I just said, all right, you go. I skipped that whole paragraph. Well, talk to us about the sunrise then. Oh, this is the best conclusion to this book. Everything is climaxing to this point where we saw this chess table, we have this conversation, and then all of a sudden Lewis says, looking at his face, referring to George MacDonald, I saw there something that sent a quiver through my whole body. Like, this is a transition. Boom. Something's happening right now that sent a quiver through his body. He says, his face flushed with a new light. A fern, 30 yards behind him, turned gold. The eastern side of every tree trunk grew bright. Shadows deepened. This full chorus was poured from every branch. And above all this, 10,000 tongues of men and woodland angels and the wood itself sang, it comes, it comes. So there is something very drastic happening that's causing, honestly, further transformations. And all of creation is beginning to sing. Yes. The cocks are crowing. The hounds are barking. Men, angels start singing. And what's happening is the sun is rising. And this is what Lewis says here. The rim of the sunrise that shoots time dead. Wow. With golden arrows and puts to flight all phantasmal shapes. And it makes me think of the prologue of John when it talks about Christ as being the light shining in the darkness. Oh. And the darkness can't overcome it. Oh, that's so good. And what happens here? Lewis buries his face in McDonald's folds. Sorry, that just sounds weird. He, Lewis buries his face in McDonald's robe. Robe? Did I? Didn't you it say folds? Isn't it like the robes folds? The, 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 the folds of his robe. Ah, there Even we go. Folds of fat as well. 
we're not going back to that because this is great. You can keep this in. <laughs> Side note, I love listening to the last episode, all of our mishaps. They were great. I'm glad you liked them. I thought I cut out the worst ones, but okay. Yeah, well, you may have cut out the worst ones, but you left in some good ones. <laughs> but then Lewis says, oh, I am caught by the morning and I am a ghost. It was too late. The light, the solid blocks, intolerable of edge and weight came thundering upon my head. And what amazes me is Lewis is afraid. He, he's almost wondering if he is solid enough. Is he too much of a ghost to handle this? And it makes me think of that feeling that you have when you see that a paper is due the next day and you haven't even started it. Or there's an exam and you know that you are unprepared. Have you ever had those dreams, by the way? Oh, yes. I have my, one of my biggest fears. It's my recurring dreams. So I have a few recurring dreams. But the number one recurring dream is I'm in college. I, I have the normal five or six courses you take in a semester. And one or two of them, usually physics, I never went to the entire year. And then I have to take the exam. I don't take the exam. I worry my GPA got hit and I was completely underprepared. And it's my manifestation of whenever I feel like I'm underprepared for something currently in life, this is that, that dream. That's a very detailed dream. Oh, it's identical every time. I'm sure Freud would really enjoy that. I think to myself, my GPA just went from like a 3.8 or 3.9 to like a 3.2 because I got an F in this course. And it's the scariest dream I've ever experienced. And it feels so real. For me too, the fear of not being prepared for something is, is very real. And I think through that, Lewis is communicating a sense of urgency that the sun one day will rise. And he's almost like he's asking his readers, will you be ready? Will you be solid enough? Will you have been making choices all through the years that will be turning you into a heavenly creature? I'm going to open this up and see what you have in response to this, David. But there is this somewhat of a conversation between your choices, but grace and forgiveness and mercy. And it feels like a bit of tug of war between grace and justice. I like that Lewis in this book did a really good job having the both and. He, he really expressed the grace through all of the bright spirits having to help the people and the fact that they would never have been able to say yes if it wasn't for the grace of the people, the grace of the spirits there helping them make them more substantial. But at the same time, he doesn't belittle the fact that, guess what? You can't just do nothing. You can't just walk through life unintentionally and pretend that this is going to all work out okay. We have to be a part of the fight. You, you described this earlier, and I loved it, of this battle going on, these decisions you make, this spiritual warfare. Good and evil are fighting for your soul. And we want to be a part of that, we, or we need to be a part of that. We need to rise up to it. And so this, this oh, I love that he makes that so tangible here. I would say he really communicates that very clearly in Mere Christianity when he quotes Paul's letter to the Philippians where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling which he says makes it sound like we're the ones doing the work. But then goes on and says, but then the rest of the passage says, for it is God who is at work in you. So it's like it's all God's work. Wow. There is some kind of trade-off there. <laughs> uh, we know that we're saved by God's grace, but there appears to be a participation that he invites us into. I've never thought of that before. You just use scripture to summarize this entire book. We did discuss that chapter of mere Christianity, so I hopefully you thought about it once before. Yeah, you know what? 
I've been in dating relationships before where where I will bring up something and then the girl will tell me, we've already talked about that. <laughs> I'm like, I don't remember. This does not surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't say that in editing, unfortunately. <laughs> no. I haven't watched too much of it, but How I Met Your Mother, I do recall there being an episode where... I've seen everyone. Ted realized that he had been on a date with this girl before. <laughs> yes. Yes, I remember this. And they order the same thing. And yeah. they order this like shellfish type dish and he makes a cheesy joke. Well, that would be very shellfish of you if you don't share with me. <laughs> oh, I remember this. When it happens, Matt, you have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So the sun is shining, but then everything seems to become very confused. Lewis says that McDonald's garments just became the folds of an ink-stained cloth that he had on his study table, and that he had fallen down from the chair, and what he thought were blocks of light hitting his head were the books that came with it. I awoke in a cold room, hunched on the floor beside a black and empty grate, the clock striking three, and the siren howling overhead. Have you ever had that experience when the outside world comes into your dream, typically in the form of an alarm? Something in your dream, you hear this siren sound and you slowly wake up and realize that it's the alarm on your phone going off. Yeah, like every other day. <laughs> I clearly stopped by the last few sentences. I tend to be a skimmer with things. <laughs> As that, That's a very odd way of pronouncing the word lazy, but okay. <laughs> Actually, I'm thinking of right now, ever since I had drinks with david and his lovely girlfriend marie who's not pretty great but the best she is the best she pointed out my greatest flaw is i accept good enough and i think about that all the time now <laughs> i think to myself i brought I, I when i read this chapter probably six or seven times in preparation for this because i'm i'm thinking to myself i'm leading the last chapter of this yeah don't mess it up i just what i thought but I, I probably stopped with the last three or four sentences. So I didn't read the last three or four sentences in great detail. Because I'm like, well, they're the last three or four sentences. I didn't know that 3 p.m. This is the first time I'm hearing that. 3 p.m. Yeah. And what's the significance of 3 p.m., Matthew? Okay, Dave, I'm not an idiot. Jesus Christ, the crucifixion. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I did not know this. This is what I get for good enough. This reminds me, though. David and I talked about doing an episode where we each talk about if we were to write our own or we write a chapter about the other. So if I were to write a chapter about a ghost that was David and he were to write about a ghost that were Matt. So essentially the ways that we would say no to eternal reality or ultimate reality. I think we would actually really have to do it about ourselves. You and I are close friends. I don't know if we're quite close enough to be able to do that. And also you might get really hurt when I point out all of your major flaws. Okay, first of all, your girlfriend, who I've only hung out three or four times, essentially told me good enough is going to be my flaw. I handled that pretty well. <laughs> I've spent a lot more time with you. I could totally handle this. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, okay, here, I'll put it this way. I'm the type of person when I invite someone to give it to me. I don't like unsolicited feedback. When I invite someone to give it to me I can, and I tell them, just, just lay it on thick. I can bite my tongue. It might hit me at first. I might have to take a couple of days to sleep on it, but I, I actually really relish that. Well, we might do that then in, in the retrospective. We should. Just a couple minutes. We don't need to spend much time on it because I think, I actually think <laughs> Oh no, Marie, I'll have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think Marie was spot on. Yeah, she's kind of insightful. I th you know what? I haven't been able to let this go. 
and, and I'm noticing it. Maybe it's confirmation bias, but constantly flaring up in my life. I'm like, huh, yeah, that's me doing good enough. And just so people know, I set high standards for myself in life. But what I told Marie is I do live with this principle that you spend 20% of the time getting 80% of results. Mm-hmm. And so once I get the 80% of results, I go on to the next thing because then I can maximize the amount of my outcomes. But there are certain things in life you need to get to the 100. And spiritual journey is one of those. And clearly my 80-20 rule is not helping me. <laughs> This is also why David doesn't let me edit the episodes because I would spend 20% of his time getting 80% of the results. Well, we'll actually be farming that out so somebody else is doing the editing in season three. So I'm looking forward to that. But Mark, before we leave... R- real quick though, I can't, I can't let this ungo said. Mark my words, listeners, that that happens two or three episodes and David doesn't. David comes back to it. That's a prediction. Nope. It's a chap called Nick. He's going to be doing the editing. And uh, I've already told him I'm going to uh, retain his services for all of season three. So it's going to happen. All right. You thought that I was never going to be able to relinquish control of the introduction, but you got the introduction for season two. I'm glad I'm helping you on your spiritual journey, relinquish Mm -hmm. control. Oh, yeah. I grow whether I have a choice or not. Um, (laughs) Before we leave this ending, I do want to point out something, and that's that Tolkien hated this ending. What? I love this ending. Well, what he didn't like about it was he thought that if you build a world, it has to be immersive. Anyone that's read Lord of the Rings will know that it is thorough. What he didn't like about the Chronicles of Narnia was the fact that Jack pulled from all different kinds of mythologies and mixed them all together. You had Father Christmas and Bacchus and you had all of this stuff mixed in together. And what he didn't like about the Great Divorce is you spent the time building this world only right at the end to be told it was all a dream. That's what I loved about it, though. Me too. I think Tolkien's wrong on this one. So do I. <laughs> it's almost... Well, it, what I love about this ending, maybe Tolkien was focusing on a subset of it, the idea that it was only a dream. But what I loved about the ending was it was so abrupt. I, I literally get the sense that Lewis was given this grace from God to recognize that his choices make a huge difference and he has another chance to implement this knowledge into his life. And it really makes... You think about that. Like, we just were given this grace to know every listener here who has followed us on this journey now has a more real understanding that your small decisions affect your eternal soul. And that's a grace. And now you get to go back to your life with that knowledge and move forward. That's essentially what's happening here. It's like, boom, he's back into reality with this new knowledge. And it asks the question, how then shall we live? Yes. It's sort of like a Christmas carol where Scrooge gets to see what will happen to him if he continues down his current path. And then he wakes up to discover that it's still present time, and he now gets to make new choices. Or Matthew McConaughey in Ghost of His Girlfriend's Past. That too. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't help myself. I don't build a good case for myself on this podcast sometimes. You don't. All this Taylor (laughs) Swift nonsense as well. Um... So, listeners, we have now finished The Great Divorce, but we're not quite yet done with this season. Next week, you're going to hear a recording of uh, a discussion that I had with Professor Lewis Marcos, who is a phenomenal Lewis scholar, and he wrote a book about heaven and hell in the Western canon, basically in all the great works of literature of the West. And he spent some time in his book talking about the place of The Great Divorce. He's a professor, a wonderful teacher. I'd heard him speak before, so 
I'm literally just asking him a couple of questions and he just goes for it. I learned so much and I'm sure you all will too. After that, we're going to have our Great Divorce Retrospective, when we're just going to take an overview of the entire book, talk about what it was like to read it in public over the course of several months. And after that, we're going to have a few more After Hours episodes with other guests whom Matt and I have interviewed. And we're also going to continue our tradition of discussing a Narnia book each season. And since we're reading the books in publication order, which is the only <laughs> sensible way to read them... Obviously, Lewis doesn't think that, but that's okay. Just wait till next week. <laughs> the next one that we're therefore going to be discussing is Prince Caspian. And hopefully by then, the Lamppost listener, our friends over at another podcast, will have finished their chapter-by-chapter chapter reading of Prince Caspian. So Matt and I will then talk about the specifically the theological themes that we see in that book. But then we're going to end the season with something a little different. Tell the people about it, Matt. It's an after hours I did with an individual. Her name's Emily Laporte. And she more or less wrote her entire dissertation on Till We Have Faces. And so it's a little bit different than David's after hours interviews where it's, it is me interviewing her and hearing about how she, what she learned about Till We Have Faces. But it's a bit more than that. It's, it's her going to go into some decent detail in it to give us a really good background for when we read it. And I, I believe it's going to allow us to enjoy it much more when we go through it. It was a really good conversation. She is, you guys should be really excited because she's brilliant, first of all. And she has a combination of an incredible head, you know, that, that brain, the intellect. But yet, because of her family, which is very devout, she has an incredible heart as well. And so you get this beautiful blend between the head and the heart how we bring the faith into life. She lives it out in her life. So I'm very excited for this interview. It's my first one too. So of course I'm going to build it up a little bit. <laughs> and just to be clear, in season three, we're going to be reading Till We Have Faces. Is this the first time we've actually officially said it? I think so, yeah. I haven't actually even read the book yet. And it's notoriously quite difficult. But fortunately, we're going to have some help from an unexpected source. That's all I'll say. You'll find out in season three. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I have some haikus to share. I wrote a few for Lewis. What is this vision? Are my choices set in stone or can I yet choose? This is all a dream to teach about our choices. Death is yet to come. Sunrise comes at last, but how ill prepared I am to receive the light. And I wrote one final summary haiku. Pray, what is hell like? It's incovatus in se, each soul turned inward. <laughs> <laughs> well played, David. And I also had a little play on words again. Pray, what is hell like? <laughs> Pray, nice, nicely done. Thank you. We, I've got to stop doing this. I agree. I don't know what you're going to say, but I agree. I know. <laughs> I almost don't want to say this because I feel like I've spent too much time buttering David up lately, but it is a gift having him on this podcast because David is one just has a natural intelligence, but I think beyond that, you have a very good ability to connect different things together because you're very well read. Lewis, Church Fathers, Scripture, Augustine, Chesterton, all this, you pull it together well, which is why I, I believe it'll be next week will be the first week. 
we're going to do those those YouTube videos where we have these conversations where we get a chance to essentially explore your brain. We're going to. I, <laughs> I mean that though. It's like David doesn't like the term David unhinged, but that's probably the colloquial way of saying it. <laughs> Unconstrained, but it's it isn't going to be Matt and David. But I anticipate this being seventy thirty, not fifty fifty, of me guiding a conversation, but not giving David really any any warning of what we're going to be talking about. And just seeing what happens, because every time on this podcast, I ask a question to David or something comes up and and David and I, in many of these situations, just so you guys know, don't prep these. Like when I have a question, it's typically unprepped. It's off the top of my head. He answers it really well. And so these podcasts are very tied to what we're talking about. But these YouTube videos we're going to release weekly are going to be, well, very much rooted in Lewis. They will allow us to deviate a bit more. And so I am really excited for those. So listeners, this will probably be happening in the next couple of weeks. You will see these being released. In the retrospective, we said that we would write about the ghostly version of the other in heaven. And I just want to make it very clear that all of this buttering up isn't going to make me the slightest bit kinder when I'm talking about your deep failings. Perfect. That's okay. As long as it keeps me as your podcast co-host. <laughs> That's all I care about. <laughs> so next week, you'll hear the interview uh, with Professor Marcos. When we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.